making your way back to your seats and as you do grab your bibles you're going to be want to you're going to want to be in Exodus 17 um, although we're going to we're going to hop around a little bit and I'm going to try to put the passages that you need to see on the screen so that you're not spending a lot of time flipping back and forth but we will eventually get ourselves to numbers chapter 14 so if you want to plan ahead and you want to put some type of uh, mark there, we will end up in Numbers chapter 14. But we will be unpacking and aiming to understand uh, two more of the names of God that God reveals to us about Himself in the Old Testament. And they are the names Jehovah Nisi and Jehovah Sabaoth, or Yahweh Nisi, Yahweh Sabaoth. And so Nisi is just defined in Exodus 17 as banner. And we're going to try to understand what that word means. And the word Sabaoth is actually, it's the word for army. And when it's used as a noun, it's used to just refer to an army, a military group, all different sizes, when it's used as a verb, it's used to uh, speak to and refer to going into battle because it's a verb and there's action behind that. And so I'm going to try to unpack what it is that God reveals to us about himself through and in those names. And what we're trying to do is trying to see the character of God that he discloses as his names are revealed. And we know that names reveal character. They reveal character, and by looking at and trying to understand and studying the names of God, we can see the character of God on display. We can try to get our minds wrapped around just a little bit more of who is this God that has come and drawn near in Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, who is the exact imprint of his nature. When we pray, we're not just praying to the air. We're not just speaking words that kind of float somewhere. We're, we're having a conversation with the God of the Bible. And that God of the Bible has a character and his names reveal that character. Names reveal action as well. You can see the different actions of God. And actions roll back to character. And oftentimes the actions that you and I do come out of the character that we have. Jesus said something similar to that in the book of Mark when he said what, what's inside leads to what happens outside. Rather than what's outside dilutes or pollutes the inside. So oftentimes if you find somebody whose actions are ones of integrity and faithfulness and trustworthiness, they probably have character that is 
those things as well. And the opposite is true. If you find somebody whose actions are underhanded and deceitful and less than, their character is probably that as well. Now, we can have good character and sometimes do bad actions, which often can be the case, but we're talking about just in general, actions come out of one's character, and that's the exact same true for God. But then God's name is refuge and power, and throughout the Psalms in particular, we see where we are told that his name is refuge and power, and it's because his name reveals his character. It reveals something about him. And so the name in this sense is not just the word, it's who the word reveals and who it is that's behind the word, called by the word. And God's name is a refuge and power. And the psalmist writes in Psalm verse 20, chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand up. Right. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's interesting that the Lord uses chariots and horses. We're going to see some of that on display this morning. He uses created things, but the issue and the thrust of that verse and passage is where our trust lies. Where does your trust lie? lie? Does it lie in your ability to just work as hard as needed to create the result you want? Or does it rely in God? The idea here is that whoever it is, the some trusting in chariots and horses, are going into perhaps a battle, presumably, and their confidence is in what they've been able to bring to the table. Not who God is. And the contrast then is those who trust in the name of the Lord our God. And you can see the results. There is the collapse and fall as opposed to the rising and the standing. God's name is a place of refuge. It is a place of power. And we're trying to understand who he is. We're trying to understand his character. We're trying to understand his actions. And we're trying to understand more of him so that we may have that refuge and strength as we need. So before we go any further, let's pray. And then we'll hop into Exodus 17 and unpack Nisi. Sabaoth is very, very closely related to that. And uh, so we'll just be thinking about those almost together this morning. But we'll start in Exodus 17. So would you join me? Father God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather this morning. We gather in your name, we gather because of what Jesus has done for us, because of who he is. You tell us that in his name, we're not just allowed, but commanded to draw near into your presence. The picture you give us is that of a throne room. You tell us that because of what Jesus has done, we're able to come into the presence of the King. We're able to draw near. 
So God, we want to do that. We want to hear from you and your word this morning. We want to understand what it is that you have said. We want to have eyes to see and ears to hear and minds that understand that as we look at your word and what it is that you have revealed to us, that we would we would understand more of who you are and more of your love for us and in turn would love you more and follow you more. So God, to that end, we pray that you would be gracious to us and that your spirit would give us that illumination that as Jesus promised, he would, the spirit would come and he would remind us of what the son said and Help us understand those things. God, we pray for that and we ask for that. We, we just recognize our need for that. And we do so in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're in Exodus 17, it's going to get headed as Israel defeats Amalek. And that's this scene that takes place in verses 8 to 16. What's happened thus far is the exodus has taken place. The parting of the Red Sea has taken place. The Israelites have walked through. The Egyptians came to follow them. They got swallowed up in the water. And Egypt, or excuse me, the Israelites are on the other side in safety. And the Lord begins to now... Try to help them figure out what they're going to do and how they're going to function as this perhaps several million strong society that now has no infrastructure, no source of food. We'll find out not too long from there. No source of water. And these people, quite frankly, like you and I, are prone to grumble. And that becomes kind of a defining characteristic of this generation of Israelites, that they, they, they just grumble a lot at what the Lord does give to them. And so in chapter 16, God gives them manna, he gives them bread, he gives them the sustenance they need. They're not supposed to collect more than they need in the moment. They're not, they're, on Fridays, they're supposed to collect double because there's nothing coming on Saturday because of the rest God wanted them to enjoy, and they begin to do that. And then in chapter 17, they get thirsty, and they're grumbling, and God instructs Moses to strike the rock, and he does, and the water comes out, and they get drink. And then in verse 8 of chapter 17, we are introduced to another foe. It's not the first foe. The Lord's already conquered the Egyptians, presumably not that long ago. I don't think they went real long in the wilderness or in the desert without food and water. And we know you can't really go more than three days without water. So it's not that long of a period of time here. And in verse 8, we're told Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now I just want to briefly try to put into context for you who Amalek is because it matters in the grand scheme of things because he's a guy that's going to show up often and he's going to show up in a lot of different places and in short Amalek was the grandson of Esau okay so let's go back to Abraham and I got a very brief little genealogy on the screen for you you got Abraham 
he had two sons. One was the son of the flesh. One was the son of the promise. That's Ishmael and Isaac. And the rest of Genesis kind of follows the genealogy and the lineage of Isaac, who has two sons himself. They are twin sons. Esau is the oldest by just a very brief amount of time. Jacob is the younger. But before they do anything, God declares that the older shall serve the younger. And there is this idea, very clearly communicated, that the line and the promise of a Messiah that was made in Genesis 3.15 is coming through Jacob. Well, as Esau and Jacob get older, they didn't really get along, and Jacob was a bit of a man's man, and, or I'm sorry, Esau was a bit of a man's man, and Jacob's probably what we might refer to as a bit of a mama's boy, um, stayed close to home and spent a lot of time with mom, and, and, uh, and Esau comes back from a hunt one day and is hungry, and Jacob's just been hanging out there at the tent and had food ready, and Esau asks his younger brother for a meal, and Jacob's like, well, what are you going to give me? And they end up bargaining for Esau to surrender his birthright for the meal. And there's a lot of significance there. So much so that by the time the New Testament begins reflecting back on these Old Testament characters, the writer of Hebrews calls Esau sexually immoral, unholy, and a man who sold his birthright for a single meal and instructs all of us to not be like him. Throughout then the rest of the scriptures, Esau is generally represented as one who was the very opposite of godliness. Now Jacob wasn't a squeaky queen squeaky clean little guy himself. He had plenty of shady things that happened. But Esau seems to shake his fist and thumb his nose at God and does so then generationally. Esau becomes the father of the Edomites. He just settles in Edom. And then he takes a bunch of wives from the land of Canaan and they become then the Canaanites. And so you have the Edomites, which became a perpetual foe for Israel, who are the descendants of Jacob, who is later called Israel himself. Jacob's the man who gets the name Israel. Esau is the father of the Edomites. His wives and children come from the land of Canaan. And then he has this grandson named Amalek. And he becomes the father of the Amalekites. And these nations were perpetually the enemies of of Israel. They were the ones who opposed Israel for generations. We're not going to turn there, but if you, if you can think back to last week when we were looking at Gideon, and we talked about how the, the nation of Israel, because of their sin, was actually suffering consequences and judgment. The nation the Lord brought to execute that, or nations, I should say, was Midian and the Amalekites. Later on, the Amalekites just continually stay around and are continually a thorn in the side of Israel. And they're the descendants of Esau. It's believed by some scholars that Haman, from the book of Esther, remember that story? where Haman convinces the king to issue a decree to wipe out all 
of the Israelites living in the province under the king's direction, it's believed that Haman was actually a descendant of the king of the Amalekites. This thing just kind of perpetuated for centuries and generations and generations. And it began, in some sense, here, where the Amalekites, or Amalek, and his army come and they attack the nation of Israel. And it's later in Deuteronomy when Moses is on his deathbed giving final instructions to the nation and to Joshua. He tells them, hey, don't forget what Amalek did that day when he attacked us. Moses says he attacked us from behind and he picked off the weak and he came for the young. I mean, there, there's, a, there's an image of the battle there where it began that, that it was a bit of a sneak attack to come after those who perhaps were elderly or perhaps they were the young and perhaps not the strong. Malik didn't come and face the warriors right away. He came and picked off the easy targets right away. And this battle kind of sets into motion generations of conflict as you have the descendants of Esau generally being representative of ungodliness. And that's going to play itself out through the entire Old Testament. But it's in Exodus 17 we learn Amalek came and fought with Israel. Moses said to Joshua, verse 9, choose for us Men, and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Moses did that. And this is the battle where Aaron and Hur are on either side of Moses. And they're overlooking from the hilltop Joshua fighting with the Israelite army against the army of Amalek. And as Moses' hands got tired... The battle began to go in favor of Amalek, but as his arms were able to go back up, the battle went in the favor of the Israelites, and so they found a place for Moses to sit, and then Aaron and Hur just each supported one of his arms so that his arms and that staff stayed up, and Israel prevailed in the battle. And in verse 14, we see Moses's instructions that he receives from the Lord. And then what Moses does and says himself, the Lord said to Moses, verse 14, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my Banner, there's our word, Nisi, saying that a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. It's here that we see this name, and like last week with Gideon, this name, quote unquote, is much, it's actually technically a place. It's again an altar, but it's an altar and it's a place named because of the direct intervention of God. There wasn't any doubt in the mind of Moses or Aaron or her, perhaps not even Joshua, as to why they won the battle. It's pretty clear that when your arms start to droop and your army is getting their butt whooped, but then you put them right back up and they start to have the upper hand where the source of strength lied, and it wasn't even in Moses himself 
as God through Moses. And he names this altar, the Lord is my banner. Now the word Nisi is a word that means banner, it means pole, it's just defined as Exodus 17 gives us, the Lord is my banner, but far greater than the word banner is the idea of salvation and victory. Salvation and victory. And we can see that play itself out in the story there in Exodus 17, but also as the word banner is used elsewhere. And as we use the word banner, like we've got to get out of our minds like a four by eight vinyl banner that's going to be stitched and grommeted that's going to hang somewhere. We've got a few of those around our church and we call them banners and that's fine and it's a good name for them. But that's not the idea here. The idea behind the word Nisi was a a pole or some type of signal. It was a banner in the sense that it communicated information. It told you where the heart of the military's Um, kind of mental operation was. It was where the commanders were found. And it would be where you would find information, orders for the battle. It would be where you as a soldier might rally if you needed to regroup yourselves. You'd go to the banner. You'd go to the pole. It would be where you perhaps would find the instruction you needed, the orders to go carry out the next wave of attack. It'd be where perhaps there was protection as well, because the banner wouldn't necessarily be in the heart of the battle so much as the place where the commanders were, similarly to what we see with Moses and Aaron and her. They're on the hilltop, looking down, and there's this altar that's made, that's defined as, or called, the Lord is my banner. The word banner gets used throughout the Old Testament in some different ways, but it does just refer to that idea of protection and salvation and victory. And here the psalmist says, you have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. See, there's military imagery here. That there's a banner, there's a place of protection available for those that fear the Lord and they can flee and find refuge and strength and victory and salvation and those things. The word Nisi is used a couple places directly related to Jesus. And we're not going to turn there. I'm going to just give you the, the brief summary of these four passages. But in Numbers 21, Israel's grumbled. That's what they do, probably a lot like us, and the Lord sends a plague, fiery serpents. There's consequences for their actions, and when you got bit by a fiery serpent, you died. And so then they cry out to Moses, and hey, intercede for us on on our behalf, and we don't want to die. And, And so the Lord gives Moses the instruction to create a pole. Create a bronze serpent and lift it up that when somebody looks to it, they might be healed. And so Moses does that. And sure enough, when somebody got bit by one of these snakes slithering around the camp, they would look to the pole and they would be healed of that snake bite. Well, it's in John 3, verses 14 and 15, the ones that precede that well-known verse of 3.16, that Jesus says, As Moses 
lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In Numbers 21, we learn that Moses made the bronze serpent. He set it up on a pole, on a nisi, on a banner. And as the people looked to it, they were healed of that snake bite. And Jesus says, just like that, whoever looks to me is going to be healed. you got to wonder what in the world does a bronze serpent set up on a, on a pole have anything to do with, with healing and salvation. And it's that they put their faith and trust in the promises of God. It's the exact same thing that Jesus says then in John 3, 14 and 15. What does this guy on the cross have anything to do with salvation? Well, it's you and I putting our faith and trust in the promises of God. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Have you ever seen modern uh, medical insignias? It's a pole and a snake. Sometimes it's two, and they're kind of interwoven together. Sometimes it's one. But that image takes its initial origins back to this Numbers 21 passage where Moses lifted up the pole with the snake, and whoever looked at it was healed. There's some biblical imagery behind, actually a whole lot of hospitals and Christians developing that. But in Isaiah 11, we have another specific reference to Christ as the banner. Isaiah writes, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal, there's the word, a nisi, for all the peoples, of him the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Paul quotes this in Romans 15, 12, and says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Jesus here was that root of Jesse, that descendant of Jesse, that descendant of Jacob, that descendant of Abraham, who you and I, as those not ethnically descendants of those individuals, hope in for Salvation. Jesus is specifically referenced and references himself as the one like the serpent. And then in Isaiah, a very specific promise that he is actually the one we hope in and is the banner. Yahweh Nisi is the idea that the Lord is our banner. There is victory and salvation. But I want to be real clear here, and we've kind of touched on this throughout the the last several weeks, and just thinking through the actions of God, because not all the actions that God did in the Old Testament are commands for us to do now that we live in the New Testament. So the Lord, by being the banner with Moses, led to a defeat of Amalek. But I don't want any of you leaving here thinking you need to go find some Amalekites to beat up. Okay? That's not the idea. That's not the principle. That's not what we're trying to derive out of this. And Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. Oftentimes what we see as physical in the Old Testament gives way to spiritual come the New Testament or the New Covenant. He says, he continues, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. 
that I might not be delivered, but my kingdom is not of this world. We know elsewhere from the Gospels that he could have called a legion of angels because he's the God of angel armies. He's Yahweh Sabaoth. But that's not what he did. That's not what you and I are called to do. He tells Peter to put away his sword. Paul writes in Ephesians that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Yahweh Nisi is our banner as the one who gives victory and salvation does so for us today, but we're not going to find Amalekites to beat up after the service this morning. Rather, our wrestling and our fight is against spiritual authorities and forces and powers. Closely related to this is Yahweh Sabaoth, the warrior Lord of hosts. As I said, in its noun form, the word Sabaoth just means army. So that's the idea of the, the host, the angelic army in that sense. And in its verb form, it means going to war. And there you have the idea of a warrior. Sabaoth's a military term. It refers to entire armies or divisions of soldiers or going into battle. And this title for God is used some 278 different times in the Old Testament. Yahweh Nisi shows up once. It shows up in Exodus 17. Yahweh Sabaoth shows up a lot of places and it is used as a title for the warrior Lord of hosts. We sang that this morning, the God of angel armies, as Chris Tomlin penned those words for us. In Psalm 24, the psalmist asks the question, who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. Generally speaking, I think it's a fair thing to say when you see the word hosts in your Old Testament, there's the word Sabaoth behind it. He is the king of glory. The story in Joshua 5 verses 13 to 14 is Joshua and the Israelites getting ready to cross the Jordan River and go and march into the promised land. The land that had been promised to Abraham. The land that the Lord wanted them to go and take residence in 40 years prior. The land that they were unwilling to do so because they forgot who God was and rather trusted in themselves. And what I want to do in the time we have remaining is look at that 40 year window of Israel's history. And we'll start at the end. And then we're going to jump back to the beginning, and it's not going to be too detailed. We're going to be in the clouds at about 20,000 feet. But Joshua is getting the troops mustered. He's getting everybody around. He's getting them into place. They're getting ready to go. And when Joshua, we learn in verses 13 and 14 of Joshua 5, when he was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes. And looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man said, No, but I am the commander, the Sabaoth of the army 
of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? Verse 15, if, you just, if you're there, continue. If not, I'll read it. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. It's very reminiscent to Moses in the burning bush. It's probably another pre-incarnate interaction and encounter with Jesus as the commander of the angelic armies, the angel of the Lord. And here, the angel of the Lord is telling Joshua, get ready to go. And just even think for a moment, just move forward just a little bit, that battle, that battle at Jericho. Again, it was one of those where it wasn't in their strength. Like what military strategist comes up with, march around the city seven times and then blow your instruments. And oftentimes what you see is Israel marches into battle. The Lord has them do things that are so out of character for an army. And it's intentional to remind them that their strength is not their own. It's Yahweh Sabaoth. But if we go back in history 40 years, and if you're at Numbers chapter 14, that's where you find that account. If you go back, the 10 spies or the 12 spies have gone out. They've come back. They all agree the promised land is a good land. It's got good things. It's got, the land. it's got milk and honey. It's got all the things that we're going to need. But ten of them end up saying, but there's some people there that are pretty big. And we're not that big. And Joshua and Caleb were the two spies that went and came back and said, well, wait a minute. No, we can do this. But rather, in Numbers 14, verse 1, the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled. You see that happen again. The whole congregation said to them, that would be Moses and Aaron, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones have become prey. Would it not be better if we went back to Egypt? That's back to slavery, by the way. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back. Ten spies came back and they said, well, yeah, it's a good land. It's got, it's got all the things the Lord said it was going to have, but it's got really big people too. The enemies looked too fierce. Joshua and Caleb came back and said, well, wait a minute. Let's not forget who God is, but that's not what the people did. They grumbled. They wanted to overthrow the leadership of Moses and Aaron. They wanted to find somebody that would lead them back to Egypt. And what's amazing is that the, the chronology at this point in time, they're at most two years after the Red Sea. At most. So they're at most two years after they had defeated Amalek who came and waged war against them when Moses had his arms up. It is not that long of a period of time between those events and this event of the spies. Like They got to the edge of the promised land pretty quickly, all things considered. 
But then in their disobedience, they weren't allowed in. And then they just spent 40 years like walking in a big circle in the desert. But what's significant and what I think is significant for us is that as we think through Jehovah Nisi and Jehovah Sabaoth, God is our victory and our salvation, the warrior Lord of hosts. As we face spiritual battles, the fierceness of the foe can often blind us. And it blinds us from having a confidence in who God is. It just causes us to forget. They're, they're not even, or at, they're at most two years after. Some pretty decisive victories. The entire Egyptian army, gone. Amalek, defeated. Not gone, he's going to actually show up again in, in Numbers 14. It's like this pesky little guy that keeps people hanging around. They're not even two years, or at most two years, after these events. And the fierceness of their foe caused them to forget and to lose confidence in the faithfulness of their God. And that's going to go one of two ways. And in the beginning of Exodus, or in Numbers 14, where it goes is that they caved in defeat because they forgot who God was. And they just said, we can't do it. Take us back to slavery. Take us back to what we know. We're so terrified of the unknown and it's caused us to forget who the God that brought us to this point is. Just take us back to the bad known that we know. And it's, that's something that's even true just in working with different people and challenging situations that oftentimes it is incredibly difficult for someone to step into what's unknown regardless of how terrible the known is. That's what Israel did. And they forgot. They forgot who God was because of the fierceness of their foe and they caved into defeat and you and I can be prone to forget and when we face those spiritual battles against the authorities and the rulers we forget that the warrior lord of hosts is on our side that as Colossians 2 tells us he has disarmed all of the rulers and authorities and he has made them a public spectacle and he has put them to open shame and he has triumphed them over them by his Blood. The best imagery that I've ever been given for just trying to understand this, this reality in Colossians 2 of Jesus as the warrior Lord of hosts triumphing over all of those rulers and authorities that we're in war with is that he took their weapons and all these spiritual forces have left. It's just squirt guns that have been spray-painted black that are being pretended to actually have ammunition and force. The triumph of Christ on the cross was so decisive 
that there is no weapon formed that can stand against him. Because there is no weapon to be formed because he has disarmed them. And when you and I face opposition and we we face temptation and we face relational struggles and we're wondering where's the peace, where's, where's Yahweh Shalom? We can sometimes forget who he is and the fierceness of the foe or the difficulty of the situation can blind us and can they cause us to lose confidence. But the other side that we can also err shows up at the end of Numbers 14. God tells the generation there, you're not going into the promised land. They grumble, it's what they do. And Moses passes on those consequences. And in verse 39, when Moses heard, told these words to the people of Israel, they mourned greatly. Then they rose up early in the morning and they went up to the heights of the hill country saying, Here we are. We're going to go into that place the Lord has promised for we have sinned. Okay, That's a good start perhaps, but read verse 41. But then Moses said, Why are you transgressing the command of the Lord? Like why are you guys still sinning? Do not go up for the Lord is not among you lest you be struck down before your enemies For there, the Amalekites, you see that guy just kind of hanging around for a while, and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. Verse 44 is incredibly significant, but they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. And then the Amalekites and the Canaanites defeated them. If one of the ways that we err is forgetting who God is, the other way we err is thinking too highly of ourselves. You see it there? All right, we're going to do this in our strength. We're going to trust in ourselves. We're going to go get it done. And we presume. We presume to go. And rather than forgetting who God is and somehow having an overinflated view of ourselves, He's just asking us to trust Him. He's asking us to walk with Him. He's asking us to not forget that He's the warrior Lord of hosts, and he's the one who gives salvation and victory, that he's a mighty fortress, that he's the God of angel armies, that this is the Father's world. And to not forget who he is, and not to have an overinflated view of ourselves as if we don't need him, and we're just going to march forward in our own strength. And to that end, like the, the... the manner in which we walk in this victory, the victory that Jesus has already provided for us, is virtually no different than what we looked at last week with him and our being called to be peacemakers. It's back to those two words, trust and obey. It's spending time in his word with him. 
is he speaks to us through his word. It's spending time in prayer, speaking back to him. It's spending time with one another in fellowship. That's not time spent in the basement area where we call that room the fellowship hall. That's time together with believers who maybe need to hold up our arms because we're getting tired in the midst of the battle. It's not forgetting who he is and not somehow having some overinflated view of ourselves, but in trust and in obedience and in confidence, we walk forward. And we obey everything that he has told us. Yahweh Nisi is Jesus who has provided salvation and victory. There is eternal peace now because of what Jesus has done. But there can also be peace here, circumstantial peace. And you and I are called to be peacemakers and in the midst of the conflict. We're to not forget who God is, nor have an overinflated view of ourselves. But rather walk in trust and in faith and in obedience. Let's pray. Well, God, that's a whole lot easier said than it is lived out. And in that regard, it's, it's, it's like the ex- exact same place of application we were last week. That you call us to trust in you. First and foremostly for salvation, but also just for for life. God, you you, you tell us maybe not every detail we want to know, but you've told us what you want us to know. And to walk in obedience to that is, again, a whole lot easier to say than it is to live. God, you tell us that you're our fortress. You're the, you're the place of protection. You're the source of strength. You're Yahweh Nisi and Yahweh Sabaoth. And your character is such that you, you provide that salvation, that victory. So God, help us to walk in that. And you are mighty fortress. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.